I'm Caddy Diop. And I'm Tefra Jemian. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! yeah! Today we're kicking off the fall season, and yeah. to do so, Tefer has some housekeeping. I do. You might have noticed that despite it being fall, we still have Caddy. <laughs> so, we very sadly had to say goodbye to Sanya last week. She has a lot going on this fall, and she's not able to keep recording with us. Uh, we really, really, really appreciated having her. She really added a lot to the show this summer. We hope to have her back in some capacity or another in the future. Caddy, however, was able to stay, and uh, we're really Reed, excited. Caddy, however, has a lighter schedule <laughs> this fall. <laughs> yes. And uh, we're really delighted to have her on as a full-time host. We've been wanting a third host for a little while, and surprise, we actually got interns this summer to kind of audition for that, but we didn't tell you. Um, It me now. So Caddy is now our third host, and we're really, really, really happy to have her on board, and we're really looking forward to... Um, this fall and this winter and this year. Yes, I'm super excited to be here and Mm -hmm. to continue down this path of yeah, awesomeness. Yeah, it also means that I get to take a break for the first time in yeah podcast history and I'm actually gonna just not be around for the next two episodes. I'm going to take a break. I am starting grad school and uh, I'm just going to be not on the show for two weeks and then I'll be back. Yep. Hannah and I will be taken over and it'll be really fun and uh, we really hope that you'll join us. I'm low-key jealous of the books they're doing. Speaking of the books they're doing, dropped this week on our Patreon, our whole September lineup, the entire month of September written down in black and white. If you want to access that and know every book we are doing this September, you can sign up to be our patron on patreon.com slash yapodcast. Uh, if you start at $1 a month, you have access to that and more bonus content, uh, bonus information, really. Um, shout out to our newest patron supporter, Matt Dever, who has been a longtime friend of the Upford Network and uh, just signed on as our patron. We're always excited to have new members in the club. If you want to find out more about what our perks are, you can always head to patreon.com slash yapodcast. So... So, it's September. It's September. It's my favorite time of the year. It is back to school. It is. I love September. I don't know about you. I was one of those kids who always uh, got really excited. Uh, My parents always made fun of me because from kindergarten onwards, every night before school would start, I would have butterflies in my stomach, e.g. panic attacks, but um, nonetheless. Yeah, I love back to school Mm -hmm. it is so nice so exciting new manuals new books new notebooks fresh pencils everything about it is great and so for the next month we're going to be reading some school classics yeah for uh for for the yeah podcast for the purpose of this exercise 
<clears throat> we are defining, yeah, classics as YA books that were established before Harry Potter. Yes. Because we see Harry Potter as kind of the point at which YA became much more of a literary genre that was getting attention. So we're interested in those books that were already on the scene before there was all this media attention on YA as a genre. Yep. Uh, and, and as such, drum roll, please. We're starting off. With Louisa May Alcott's classic, Little Women. And boy, oh boy, are those l- women little? <laughs> I don't know. Oh boy, that's a good little women right there. Yep, yep there you go. Uh, that's my summary of the book. Uh, <laughs> those women were so small. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, I yeah. love the idea of a kid doing a book report without having read the book. <laughs> it's about these women that are little and... Uh, they have adventures. <laughs> no, um, so uh, Little Women uh, is the story of the March sisters. Uh, so you got Meg, the beauty, Joe, the intrepid, fiery, passionate writer, Beth, the big-hearted, sickly sister, and Amy, the bratty youngest sister um and they live in new england during the civil war their dad's off fighting uh, the people from the south and because i'm canadian i don't know what they're called he is in the union army thank he is a chaplain you. in the union army fighting the confederate army thank you this is why it's nice to have an american <laughs> around the table um, <laughs> Yep, and uh, so it follows their story from you know from from being very young to uh, being be- to becoming adults, and it is a lovely staple in every like I don't know fourth to seventh grader bookshelf. Yeah, I think so. I can't think of a book that you would call a YA book earlier Agreed. than Little Women. Fair. Like, I, I feel like it's maybe, like, the first one mm. that that has persisted. Um, and uh, the definition of YA we use is it's with a teenage protagonist and a coming-of-age arc, and this book has four of those, so I think we can pretty safely say it's YA, Heck even yes. though when it was published in 1868, Eight. yeah, um, you know, publishing was a very different world than it is now yeah when did you first read this book Jeffer? oh i i couldn't say my mother read it to us out okay. loud um so i might have been quite little really uh i just remember her crying uncontrollably when spoiler alert beth dies okay uh let us give a <laughs> note about spoiler alerts there is a great movie starring Susan Sarandon, Winona Ryder, and a slew of other awesome people, uh, um, Christian Bale. Um, this, If you haven't read this book yet, hurry. Um, also, press pause, because we are definitely going to spoil it, um, and we're going to hopefully tear it apart a little bit and put it back together. Um, yeah, end of note. So yeah, I first read it when I was in grade five. Um, and being a francophone, this book was completely out of my wheelhouse. I, I think, I actually think that this, after Where the Sidewalk Ends, this is the, like, this is the first English novel that I read. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's so special. Yeah, it really is. So you weren't, 
raised in a culture of little women. Heck no. So I very much was. And so I'm curious to hear what that was like for you. It was all-encompassing. I fell in love. I needed a character to relate to. And I, having read a lot of uh, French uh, young adult literature, um, I still couldn't necessarily find myself because, you know, I come from a family of immigrants and a lot of uh, local literature for youth is anchored very heavily in traditional Quebec culture. And so while some parts of it kind of reached me, a lot of it, you know, I still felt like very much of a stranger. Um, But I have to be honest, like most people who've read this book, I opened it, I read a little bit about Joe. And I was like, this is who I want to be in life. This is it. She's fiery. She's impulsive. She's hard-headed. She loves ferociously. Um, and she gets hurt. She gets the shit kicked out of her by, by life a little bit. Um, but she is incredible. And boy, oh boy, did I love it. The whole context was lost on me, though. Um, I have to be honest. Uh, I remember asking my parents about the Civil War, and they were like, oh, boy, this is a complicated conversation to have, Um, which which we did, but I still didn't necessarily get it. And, um, yeah, there were certain elements, like cultural elements, everything that has to do with religion and um, sort of the German influence uh, on... uh, on New England um, that was very much lost on me but it was also a a discovery Mm -hmm. Um, and it opened my eyes and uh, yeah I think the German influence was completely lost on me Mm. until this read through and then suddenly it was just like oh wow there's German just everywhere 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 so that was really interesting absolutely I had a a really opposite experience Mm. where so my mom being American being very dyed in the wool you know Mayflower kind of American um uh grew up with this book as did her mother um and so it was really a tradition an American family tradition and um I'm sure we read it when we still lived on Ontario. So I lived in Ontario until I was 10, uh, 9, 8, <laughs> 7, <laughs> 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Happy New Year, Teffer. Uh, it was, we moved in 99. So I would have been uh, 8 turning 9. And um, then we moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And of course, Louisa May Alcott is from Concord, as is. Emily Dickinson, I mean, there was just all the transcendentalists were there. Um, There is so much New England in this book. And uh, and so we read it again, kind of, you know, learning about the history of the place that we were in. And uh, and it's been really interesting reading it again now, having studied the transcendentalists in school and having some of that background, because um, the book is based quite loosely on Alcott's own family. Yes. And Alcott's father while being, you know, not the most responsible of fathers, um, was deeply involved with the transcendentalists, was friends with many of them. Um, and you do see a lot of that philosophy coming up, even with the very strict Puritan values, which the other side of it for me is that I also grew up in more or less a strict Puritan household. You yeah. know, we, we think of Puritans as extinct, but the, the values still exist in some communities. And... Um, 
quite a lot of the lessons that feel a little obscure, a little outdated in the book were very much values that I was raised with. Mm-hmm. Um, so really just totally different angle of it. And coming back to it as an adult, it's very interesting to see the things that have changed and how the experience of reading it has changed since then. Mm-hmm. Now for Philistines like myself, uh, which is actually a lie, but um, I study human sexuality, um, Cliff's notes on transcendentalism, because I have memories of reading it over and over and trying to get it and then watching the movie Oh boy. Um, and then being like, oh, I'm so confused. And then, uh, let's be honest, philosophy classes, I spent most of my time looking out the window. So I have studied transcendentalism from the literature angle, mm. uh, reading Thoreau, reading Dickinson, reading um, Walden. What I have learned, I have learned from a literary standpoint, not a philosophy standpoint, and I may get things wrong. Um, but it's very much this idea of it's it's less uh, focused on God as a as a person, um, and more focused on sort of goodness and morality and finding the human spark, and and it's very diverse. You know, there were more and less devout Christian transcendentalists, and there were pretty much atheistic transcendentalists. Um, but it's the idea of transcending, right? Transcending the current morals of the day, um, and living more purely and more truly and really sort of embracing and being the true self. <laughs> um, it's been a long time since I studied it. So no, no. if somebody's an expert on transcendentalism listening and you're like, ah, you got it all wrong, please let me know. But it's it's much more humanist than a lot of the uh, Protestant Christianity that yeah. existed in New England at the time. Um and I mean, you see certainly in like the poetry of Emily Dickinson, you see the the contrast, the tension between her being raised as a minister's daughter, very steeped in Protestantism and being really um, drawn by this idea of sort of a pure human connection to the divine, to goodness, to nature, very heavily mm-hmm. um, drawn by nature. One thing I find really interesting in this um is that this book is, I feel, carries the same tension. I feel that there are a lot of the sort of transcendentalist and humanist values that Alcott would have been raised in and that Alcott embraced um, in a bit of tension with the Protestant moral lessons that you kind of get hammered home real hard every few chapters. Oh, um, yes. And which Alcott put in so that the book would sell. Alcott did not put these in because she believed they were important lessons. Ah. She put them in because she was trying very hard to make money. <laughs> um, I mean, fair. you got to respect the hustle. Yeah. Privately, she called it moral pap for the young. <laughs> uh, Louisa May Alcott and I might have been friends at some point. <laughs> um, yep. Um, I totally get that. And it's true. I mean, there is, I mean, morality is at the center of the book to me. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it is all about being the best version of yourself for all four daughters. And seeing the struggle within that is really, really interesting because they all, all four struggle. Mm-hmm. All four of them do, uh, to varying degrees, obviously. Um, Some of them have no redeeming qualities nonetheless. 
cough, cough, Amy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, um, it is true that that this is what it's about. It's about how can you be, how can you embody womanhood and be representing all that is good in the world? Um, you know, starting in at puberty, I guess, young young adolescence. So I think that's interesting. Sorry, I'm playing connect the dots in my head yeah. based on what you just said on transcendentalism. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing I always find really lovely about Marmy, you know, Marmy comes in and gives these little moralistic speeches that sometimes you just want to slam your head into the wall. Um, but she often, usually, also slips in a little bit like, this is just so you can be who you are. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of when Meg goes to Vanity Fair and quotation marks a scene, which drives me crazy. Yes. Um, But at the end of it, she's saying, you know, I don't want you to feel that you have to marry for money because I don't think you will be happy. Yeah. Um, And so even though there's all this kind of shaming around how could you like a pretty dress and, you know, high heeled slippers, which makes me. And a corset. Nuts. (gasps) Sorry, I got uh, I, I spaced out there for a minute thinking about corsets because I was about to go off on a rabbit trail of well, in the book they don't, in the movie they don't wear corsets, but that's yeah. totally unrealistic for 1860, you know, three or whatever yeah, it's set, and everybody would have worn a corset. Yes. I care a lot about corsets. I've I've, I've, I've done that. quite a lot of research into corsets. Cool. Uh, anyway. My my knowledge of corsets <laughs> is limited. I've done uh, costuming a fair bit. And so I, I know my period undergarments. Uh, women did not start eschewing corsets really until after the 19, after 1900. Um, Whoops. With probably, I'm sure there were some transcendentalist women who were. I'm, there's always hippies. Yeah. I think that in um, the movie adaptation, let's be honest, Marmy is played by Susan Sarandon, Aka, uh, my favorite actress ever um but who is also a very fierce feminist and a very like very much of a second wave feminist uh bra burner etc so mm-hmm. i have a feeling that that might be where that came from those actresses are all wearing corsets though. heck yes <laughs> heck yes um but then i appreciated you know despite all the shaming of meg for liking pretty things when it comes down to it the heart of the lesson is i want you to marry well I don't want you to feel that you have to marry rich to like raise our family I would rather you be happy and poor um and that is a a fairly forward thinking notion for the time yeah uh even today in certain (laughs) circles let's be honest okay so I really want to talk about the fact that um in this story goodness is valued through the pettiness of the girls as well um and as you were just you were just mentioning you know meg loving pretty things i think you know joe has the vanity of her hair um which uh, she eventually chops off to buy her mother a, a train ticket um you know beth off the top of my hand uh, the top of the oh wow Hard times. Off the top of my head, Beth doesn't so much have that issue other than she is too good, which leads to her very, very, very sad um, death. And then Amy is just, I can't, I can't stand Amy. There, I said it. She is 
perhaps one of the characters that I like the least in the history of all the books that I have read. Wow. There, I said it. I am very sympathetic towards Amy. I, I feel like I get Amy. Sure. I'm I'm worried about what this is going to do to our to our relationship, but <laughs> I uh, I sympathize heavily with Amy in many ways. Yeah. See, I'm also the youngest of four. Yeah. Um and I think Amy is babied so much and uh everyone gives in to her whims and and her her desires and she is a pest like she's just it it's her way or the highway even to the point where she uh um, we haven't spoken about Lori yet but you know with who she marries Mm -hmm. you know like she she just wants to be better than everyone else and not so much in a way where it's based off of morality you know a, a desire to be more morally superior it really just comes from a desire of being better than everyone and i can't i cannot whether it's the first part of the book i uh, just a little note for everyone uh, the book was originally released in two parts uh, the first part is them as I guess children um, and the second part is them as uh, adults and I just even adult Amy I'd throw her out the window can't do it can't handle her Mm -hmm. she's just so snooty there I got that off my chest I feel much better now good (laughs) I think I, I always felt a lot of sympathy for Amy I mean, as a child, because I, I I felt kind of shame for feeling sympathy with Amy because she's she's so clearly you know the worst one. Everybody kind of says, oh yeah, she's the worst one. Um, but as the youngest of quite a lot of sisters and the vainest of quite a lot of sisters mm-hmm. and the most artistic of quite a lot of sisters, I I just felt that I had so much in common with her. I I mean, I think I was not quite as spoiled and pettish as as she is though I had my moments uh-huh. um, we all do yeah <laughs> I, I I mean even you know the scene where she burns Joe's manuscript Oof. I had a similar uh not not quite as bad I don't think but my sister had a very treasured blankie that my grandmother had made for her and uh this was when we were living in the woods in Ontario really in the country and uh my sister got to go to the grocery store oh. with my dad, and I was not allowed to go to the grocery store. Oh, no. And I remember, I remember standing at the window, watching them drive away, and going, you will be sorry. <laughs> and, oh, uh, my. In a fit of rage, I took my sister's blanket, and I took my sister's sewing scissors, and I, I cut a hole in it. Just... A small hole, but it was a knit blanket. Oh, so it unraveled. Which at the time I didn't understand the significance of that. I thought it was mendable, but really just like cut a piece out of it. (laughs) And that evening she was in the top bunk and I was in the the bottom bunk. We were probably five and seven. Okay. At the time. (laughs) I was five or so, maybe six, seven, eight. 10, 11, 12. <laughs> Happy New Year, Tefer. 
and she she shook it out and started I just I still remember the curling in the pit of my stomach as she gasped and said there's a hole in pink blankie and uh I said you know maybe it was moths and I was just sitting there feeling more miserable by the second and finally just burst into tears and you know what's wrong what happened I cut the hole in pink blankie I was so mad and um I just remember my mom saying well that was a really rotten thing (laughs) and and how small and how shriveled and awful I felt at that moment you know deservedly so it was a real shitty thing to do Um, and my mom, I remember, actually let me choose my punishment. Oh, my. She said, what do you think? Because That's I think she parenting. saw how guilty I felt, how terrible I felt. Um, the blanket was eventually fixed. Uh but I would wake up in the night tearfully and pad over to my sister's bed and wake her up to apologize for years oh, that's, afterwards. Okay, that's really sad, though. <laughs> Until she finally just was like, I don't even think about that anymore. Please stop waking. <laughs> yeah, my sleep is more important. Um, yeah, fair. But because of this, you know, I I feel like I can get it I can get that level of pettiness the feeling of being left out and left behind and wanting to do something big so that people will notice you um and I found reading it this time I felt even more sympathy just realizing how young she is in the beginning of the book that she is she's 12 when it starts and just kind of being like she she wants to be grown up she's so clearly wants to be a grown-up, sophisticated young woman. And not only do they lack the means for that. I mean, you see the contrast between her and Meg. Meg manages to be sort of elegant and sophisticated naturally and easily uh, without any money or or frills or anything. And Amy, just poor thing, can't get the language right, can't get the look right, feels her nose is not right, you know, um, just feels so many miles away from yeah. who she wants to she, be. There's definitely a desperate quality to yeah. Amy. Um, and and it makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I, I understand, um, you know, from personal experience, uh, but also through, through the way that she's described in the story, she's, she's losing everyone around her, right? She's the youngest. She, she hears of all these things that have happened. She she desperately wants to be a part of it because she knows that as soon as her sisters marry off, well, mm, toodles kind of mm-hmm. thing. So I get it. It doesn't mean I don't, yeah, I still... You don't have to like No, her. I know, I know, I know, I know. I don't feel obligated yeah. to like her, but I do think that she was she was written in a way where it makes a lot of sense. And I think that my biggest issue probably stems from the fact that I understand that feeling. I definitely understand it. The acting uh, out that goes with it is something that maybe, you know, due to the way that I was raised and things like that, is not acceptable. So that might have more of an influence on how I feel about her than anything. She just, to me, feels like just a bratty little girl who mm-hmm. like will mess up and then you know will be 
you know, get a little tap on the hand and then everything will be fine kind of thing. Even though it takes lots of time for Joe to forgive mm-hmm. her, etc. I think we do see a difference um, after Beth dies. Big time. And and suddenly, you know, if we're talking about being left behind, you know, her, her oldest sister is married. Joe is off having her career. Yes. Amy is still very much trying to figure herself out. And she is one of the little girls, and then Beth isn't there anymore. Yes. And, and you do really see her kind of take stock of things. And um, I do really appreciate the, um, even before that, the, the uh, accountability she holds for Lori. Yes. When Lori goes to Europe and turns into a little shit. Sure. And I, I do think, ultimately, it makes a lot of sense for Lori and Amy to end up together. I, I may have angered many people. I think I've angered you. but it <laughs> Not yet. Not yeah, yet. Yeah. I'm waiting to hear the end of the um, point. Because they're both... They have similar flaws, I think. They, they similarly are torn between the desire to be good people and genuinely their best selves and their sort of artistic temperaments and appreciation for luxury and appreciation for fashion yes. in a way that none of the other characters really have. Yeah. Um, You're much nicer to Lori than <laughs> I am. Um, to me, Lori is, pardon my French, the original fuckboy. And yeah, I think he and Amy deserve each other yeah. to a certain extent. Um, they both want what they want, when they want it, how they want it. They're both petulant children. Um, for those who have not read the book yet, um, Lori is the next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the grandson yeah grandson of uh, the owner of the manor next to uh, the march house and he lives what seems to be a very boring existence where he's basically homeschooled um by the professor and uh, not the professor because that's that would be joe's professor but yeah where where he just his tutor his tutor thank you uh from the tutor and um he is uh, he joins the March family. He lives a solitary existence. He craves the the camaraderie, the 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 silliness, the the wildness, I guess, mm-hmm. of uh, the March sisters, um, because they are themselves and and they take up space. And I think that that's an interesting thing also is to consider that these young women are raised to to be individuals and mm-hmm. to be loud and to say things, etc., uh, which is very counter to uh, the culture at the time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Lori, Lori has a huge love for Joe. Yeah. Huge, huge, big love. Big, 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 big first crush. And uh, eventually, after he goes to college, wants to marry Joe, and Joe says no. Um, and I guess... Obviously, Joe being at the center of the story is a representation of Louisa May Alcott, who, um, you know, never married. Joe refuses Laurie because she loves him too much. And there is something there that I love from Joe. It's the ability to say, this is so much that it's going to fizzle. And Laurie goes brooding and then, like, rushes off to Europe and becomes, like, drunk, kind of like you know bad boy Lori Uh, you know 
then you weren't worth marrying in the first place. If you're not able to have the patience or to court or to woo or to anything and, and you know, I'm a big lover of cheese and, and all that. But that's not, that's not love, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And when, I mean, ultimately it's what, it's Beth's death that kind of uh, brings him and Amy together yeah. because he is, the, you know, they're, they're each other's lifeline back to uh, Concord. And I, um, yeah, go ahead. I, I think it also snaps him out of it. I think Beth dying mm. makes him realize that that losing the whole family is a bigger loss than just losing Joe. And that also if he can reconcile himself, if he can put on his big boy pants and get over being, you know, turned down, um, he can still have the family in his life. Yeah. Um and I I mean I do think it's it's a wake up call for him. I will say I watched the uh the version the movie with Christian Bale and Kirsten Dunst and Winona Ryder in it. Oh. For the first time I had not seen it before and I watched it with my partner and about halfway through he went, "Wow, all of the men in this are fuckboys." Um <laughs> And it's true. I mean, the yeah. movie, it's absolutely true. I would absolutely. say Christian Bale as Laurie, he's, he, he's just irredeemable. Yes. Um, I think in the book, he has a more redemptive narrative, absolutely. especially if you read like Joe's Boys, yeah. you read the later ones. One of the things I like about this book is that the characters are allowed to have those ups and downs, those fully human ups and downs. Yeah. And are allowed to, you're allowed to see a character be very shitty and do shitty things and also still love them and still root for them. Yeah. In a way that, like, the other place I feel like I've seen that is Mad Men. Mm. <laughs> um, but there's a quality of writing there um, yeah. that is really interesting. Absolutely. Um, I, th- I think listening to you talk about Laurie makes me realize that he uh, shoplifted, he, he, to quote Jerry Maguire, he shoplifted the pootie um, in the sense that he fell in love with the family before he fell in love with Joe. And Joe was 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 a representation uh, of, of that. And again, in my book, it's great to fall in love with a family, but you still have to do the work to join it. It's not just like, I'm here, I'm rich, yeah. I am no longer a bad boy, I am ready to join your family. That's not how that works. And Laurie is embraced as a March sister, basically. Um, he really is by all the girls. And, and, I think and that, by their mother. And by also, their mother, yeah. yeah. And it's there's something lovely about how even his grandfather also opens up and embraces Beth and, mm-hmm. and her musicality and all that stuff. And, and that's beautiful. Then you, do you really need to, like, do you know what I mean? Like, maybe I'm just being extra stern today, but there's something, there's something a little dishonest Mm. about Lori Mm -hmm. and and that challenges me I guess I no, I think you're right I do think there's there's a level in which I think this also plays into the morality of the time Mm -hmm. if we're going to keep with this kind of chronological theme of wealth makes you a worse person and there's some honor in being less less wealthy um and I do think that that Lori ultimately you know, is not a march. <laughs> um, nope. Despite trying, but there's also the way he was raised. There's the fact that um, 
his father had run off and married his mother and his grandfather never approved of his mother and only took him back after his parents were dead that he didn't let him play music because it reminded him of his mother who he never approved of um laurie's like very much a poor little rich boy yeah and i think that because i don't have a lot of sympathy for affluenza yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, Yeah. but i am also looking at this with a very much of a 2019 lens Mm -hmm. and uh i think you bring a lot of nuance to that i mean i think you're not necessarily supposed to be sympathetic to Lori, you know, say more, say more, please. Like, I mean, I know everybody is <laughs> sympathetic to Lori, but I, I do think that in a lot of ways, Lori serves as a foil. That there's the March sisters who are raised, I mean, quote unquote, poor. They have a servant, they have a house, they yes. are not really wanting, but you know, they're raised in genteel poverty, and Lori is raised in wealth and pomp and circumstance next door. Um, but with negligent caregivers, yes. negligent or uninterested caregivers, um, whereas the Marches have these involved and loving parents. And it, it really is sort of the parable of like, better is a dinner of herbs in poverty than, you know, the richest. I can't yeah, remember the yeah, wording, yeah. but like the richest meal in a house with no love. So to an extent, I think there is supposed to be a contrast there. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that analysis. It's a... That speaks to me a lot. Cool. Cool. I like it. <laughs> I was going to move into more frivolity. Yes, please. Are you prepared for more frivolity? I need frivolity. I am a frivolous woman. So I know that you, um, your aspiration is Joe or was Joe when yes. you first read the book. Who would you say is your honest analogy? <laughs> it may be Joe. I'm just curious. No, I still think that I aspire to be Joe, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's how it's supposed to be. Um, I think that I live somewhere in between Beth and Meg as a community worker, a longtime community worker. Uh, I relate to Beth a lot, that desire to constantly do more and, uh, you know, to work yourself to the bone and uh, not take care of yourself, really, like, kind of abnegate, you know? Um, but also the sense of duty and responsibility that uh, come from Meg. Uh, that's very important. Uh, I relate to that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, 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 Yeah. I think of myself, I think, as a, as a Meg-Amy hybrid. Yeah. Not the same level of responsibility necessarily as Meg because I was the youngest in my family, but a similar sort of longing for pretty things and... Yeah, you know, also not necessarily having them, but with a good streak of Amy's pettishness. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally get that. And look, I think that ultimately, if we are honest and get a little cheesy here, we are all of the March sisters, mm-hmm. and even sometimes a little bit Marmy. Yeah. It was so interesting to read Marmee. I mean, this always comes up. I'm sorry I never shut up about how I'm a parent. And I read these books as a parent. But I read this book as a parent now, which is new. I haven't read it since I became a parent. And uh, I like the part where Marmee, like, lets Joe in on the secret of, like, I lose my temper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's like, oh, when you do this, is, is that when you're losing your temper? And she's like, yeah. And Joe's like, I'm sorry, should I not have noticed? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's okay. And I just recently had a very similar conversation with my child about mm. just like, 
we were we were talking well it started about police brutality but like we were talking about <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry I'm sorry um just one moment your child is five and the conversation started about police brutality okay Teffer I see you I see you ally parent I like it it's intense at the age of five but I kind of like it go on um I don't <laughs> I don't remember exactly how it came up, uh, but we were just, you know, talking about how the police are supposed to serve and protect, but don't always. Um, anyway, but we we yeah. were having a very honest conversation about just, you know, uh, oh, it was also about the prison system. So I was like, if if you, <laughs> if I just sent you to your room for an hour when you did this and like didn't explain what the problem was do you think you would learn? And she was like, I, I think I wouldn't do it again. And I was like, but would you like get it? And would it make you feel comfortable with me? And it's just, it's always fun when you have those conversations where your kid kind of gets to know yep. like some of the tips and tricks, <laughs> like gets to peek behind the scenes. And it, it's, it feels very real to see yeah, that. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. For sure. And I find that incredible. I also have this image in my head of your family dinners being like a Black Panther meeting. <laughs> and like you're like a mother of the movement who's like getting your children to like raise fists before eating. And oh, I love it. Um, and, and you know, the, the funny part of that is um, I am the Black one and Teffer is not. And <laughs> Oh boy, I still love it. I really want to see Tom in a Black Panther beret now. Um, <laughs> yep. Um, I I would. We are not, you know, quite <laughs> at that level, but we do talk about social issues quite quite often. And I love uh, it. Partly getting ready for school, yeah. and I want to make sure that there's some understanding there. Um, anyway, there's there's a lot there. But <laughs> That's awesome. Oh my god, parenting for the win. You are. A treasure. Um, shall we talk a little bit about about the film adaptation now? Yeah, because there are several. I have only seen the the classic. Yes, and only recently. I think it is the only one worth watching. Okay. There is currently one on Netflix. I started watching it. Not very good. Is it the BBC miniseries one? No, it's a contemporary adaptation. Oh. Mm. No. Not, not worth it. Uh, pas pour moi. Not for me. Okay. Um, however, there is a Greta Gerwig version coming out this Christmas. And look, I mean, I love Greta Gerwig. She's like, yeah, I love her. Love her. Want to be her. But the casting is so hipster everyone is very wispy and like lanky and this is a this is a story that happens during the civil war like people are working hard um you know and and there's a there's a sort of dirtiness to the environment and this looks very clean and pretty and all that and and yeah, so I'm struggling a bit. The the trailer looks looks nice. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, Meryl Streep plays Marmy. 
I am I am looking up the cast right now, but my phone is being very slow. No worries. Uh, maybe you will co- uh, correct me in a, in a minute or so. Um, my my biggest gripe, though, I must say, is with the casting of Timothy Chalamet as Laurie. Now, Timmy, as I will call him now, is awesome and call me by your name. And by awesome, I mean uh, incredible. What a lovely actor. However, he lacks the mm, the grit that we need for Laurie to be a true fuckboy um, and to be, you know, the bad boy Mm. like it's like casting like a kitten to play a tiger or something Mm. you know what I mean I struggle with that how do you feel I am not familiar with Timothy Chalamet Mm. apart from as a name on Twitter because I am not as the kids say hip with the times (laughs) um I believe that Meryl Streep is in fact Aunt March oh and not mother I think maybe Laura Dern is Marmee Oh, that's a good casting. Um, Laura Dern is... It says Mary March, but I feel like that may be... Yeah. Marmy. Um, I'm excited about Emma Watson, Sarzy Ronan, uh, Florence Pugh, Eliza Scanlon. I think it's an interesting cast. Sure. I think it's going to be very aesthetic. Yeah. Um, I am looking forward to watching it, but very much as a, like critical eye Mm -hmm. so something I've been thinking about a lot having watched the it's a 95 adaptation is it and the reading the original novel um about how morality changes in different adaptations about how the 95 version takes um this sort of well, transcendentalist morality mixed with Puritan morality and yes. just takes the part that translates into 1995, sort of its second wave on the cusp of third wave feminism. Yep. And it's, you know, we don't wear corsets in this house, which, as I said before, <laughs> is just wildly unrealistic. And, yes. Um, you know, you can do whatever you can, you want, and totally removes Pilgrim's progress and totally removes all of the, you know, Jesus will help you stuff. Um and really just kind of picks and chooses to make a, like, 90s, you know, Ani DeFranco feminist movie. Um, <laughs> I like that. So I'm... But, 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 but with the fuckboys. So I'm curious to see how the 2019 one picks and chooses and what they pick and choose. Because I suspect, being Greta Gerwig, she's not going to lean real hard on the Protestantism. Um, I would imagine that she would do research into transcendentalism and maybe let sure. that... that influence it heavily which is something the 95 adaptation in fact does you have joe talking about the transcendentalists with a group of men in a boarding house oh it's so good um so i i'm really interested to see sort of how 2019 flavors it fair i i I will 100 percent go see it and likely on christmas day um because i I love this story and i also have a deep nostalgia for the 1995 version uh, version Mm -hmm. which i mean i would have been what like 10 or 11 when that came out so like it is definitely in my wheelhouse uh did i have a slight crush on christian bale as laurie even though he was a fuck boy Oh yes, um, did I, I have I a slight crush? Do. Yeah, did yeah. I have a crush on uh, Winona Ryder uh, as Joe? Oh 
Heck yes. Still do. <laughs> Still do. Yeah. The tutor also can get it. Yep. But, oh, you think? Oh, yeah. With his little derpy curly oh. hair? His little... His little... Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Yeah, look, I am yeah. a woman in my mid-30s. Uh, the 90s uh, slacker Kurt Cobain haircut <laughs> will forever do it for me. Um, <laughs> it might also be my undoing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I will go see it. I will keep an open mind. I love Greta Gerwig, as I said. I just... I'm worried that we're going to lose. And I mean, the the grit and the dirt is such a part of this novel, uh, such a part of this novel. Yeah. Right? This is this is this is about real people. This is this is Louisa May Alcott's family. Sure, it might be romanticized a little bit, but there's still a lot of like salt of the earth goodness in there. Um and if that goes away, I will be sorely disappointed. Mm-hmm. There. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> Maybe we need to revisit, <laughs> do a little bonus content once the film comes out. Yes, chat about it. I'm excited that they are that they did film in Boston. Mm. I believe that probably means they used the Louisa May Alcott house, nice. um, which I think is cool. But yeah, I'm, I I will watch it. I am not. I don't stand as hard for Little Women the novel as a lot of people do. Mm. This is something I've been noticing with that and with Anne of Green Gables. Um, that people feel very passionately yes. about the original text as it is. And I, as I get older and as I get more involved in this media analysis thing, get more and more interested about like the ways film adaptations depart from the originals and what that says about living in a society. Um, and I think kind of the more I get into that, the more I'm willing to just be like, eh, why not have it in space, you know? I mean, I would watch Little Women in Space. Little Women in Space. Like, you cannot even imagine. I would watch a Muppet remake of Little Women. Okay, Muppet remake of Little Women, but one of the original actors remains. Who is it? Susan Sarandon. Yes. <laughs> Susan Sarandon gathered around with her puppet children. <laughs> Susan Sarandon. Who else? In space. Yes. Winona Ryder is too <laughs> Make old. Make this happen. Uh, Alyssa Milano. Too old. No, 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 no can do. No, 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 no. Susan Sarandon. So who would you cast for Laurie? Oh, this is a good question because I am not too familiar with the The youths. Um, I will say that in ideal circumstances a young Javier Bardem would make a great Laurie mm-hmm. I can see it yeah because we were talking before like the thing that, that bugs me is that like Laurie is supposed to be very clearly like half southern Italian and yes. he's supposed to look different yes and Christian Bale and Timothy Chalamet just don't oh yeah Javier, Javier Bardem butchered that I was trying to say Christian Bale and Javier Bardem at the same time. I love it. Yeah, he can get it. He oh, Javier Bardem. Who? Don't get me started. That's a whole episode <sighs> of me talking about how he is gorgeous <laughs> and imperfect and strong and brooding, but gentle and cute. And anyways, I think um, I'm, I'm in physical pain looking at his face. Yes, God. yes, Heifer. <laughs> yes. Stick with me, bud. Um, who's the other actor who looks so much like him, though? Who plays, uh, but he's Irish. 
He's in P.S. I Love You, and he is also... Gerard Butler. Not Gerard Butler. He's the, <laughs> the one who's alive in P.S. I Love You. Oh, um, Denny. Yeah, uh, Denny Duquette from, from, from Grey's Anatomy. There we go. Thank you. I was trying to remember. Jeffrey Dean Morgan. I find that he and, and Javier Bardem could play like brothers separated at birth. Yes. Know? And I would yeah. also like to live inside that sandwich. Same. That is yeah, a good yeah, yeah. sandwich. Yeah. That is a good heteronormative sandwich, but it's a good sandwich that in which I will gladly be the tofu spread, turkey, tomato, mayo, yeah, you name it. Yeah. I'm there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Whatever kind of sandwich toppings they prefer. Yes. Into it. Into it. Don't get me started with like who can get it lists. These are dangerous. I had you cast. I had thought of Darren Chris, although I feel like he may be too old now. Um, but he is dark haired, dark eyed, appropriately, has just so much vim and vigor and fizz and pop and wow. I feel you you know, <laughs> we know he can play piano from Glee. We do. Um Jonathan Groff would also make who was also in Glee, but um, you know, is a bit fairer. But yeah, he's got has, blue eyes, which for me is a big hard no for Laurie. Fair, but contacts, Teffer. He's I got guess. also, just like Darren Chris, like, sort of that like mm, gravitas, like that like forcefulness. But he is also yeah. too old. Yeah. Well, Teffer and I. But you know what? I think Darren Chris and Emma Watson are around the same age. Ooh. So I'm just going to say Darren Chris. Yes, I like it. Yeah. I am realizing that we have similar tastes in uh, Indeed. the man folk. Indeed. Yep. Indeed. Yep. Jonathan Groff did not do anything for me until uh, I started hearing him sing. And then I was like, oh, yes. Yes. Mm. And then in Mindhunter. Oh. I haven't seen Mindhunter yet. Yep. Uh, I, I suggest. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book to us for us to... Uh, blah. Thanks for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read or just say hi. Send us an email at theyeahpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Yeah Podcast and individually I'm at Teffer Bear and I'm at Caddy double underscore D. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yeahpodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Catherine Resch, Erica Stutchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhope, Chantal Thomas, and our very newest patron, Matt Dever. We love you, Matt. We've got merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Tee Public. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and by sharing this episode with a friend who loves little women. Yes. Or someone who hates little women. Or someone who loves Timothy Chalamet. Oh, 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 I'm about to make some enemies. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tefera Jenny. That's that's me. And edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Howard Mitnick, host of Gateway Music. Join me as I talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives and about the artists and albums that changed mine. Available on the Upford Network and wherever you get your podcasts.
If you're someone who interacts with kids, you're probably familiar with moments of being asked questions you're just not equipped to answer. Whether it's the old favorite, where do babies come from, or the nuances of discrimination, Rad Child Podcast has your back. Each episode, your host, Seth Day, leads a discussion about topics like race, disability, loss, gender, sexuality, and so much more. Our goal is to give grown-ups the tools to talk to kids about almost anything. So come give a listen. Rad Child Podcast, helping to raise a generation of open, compassionate, rad kids. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else.